Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 was out of town last week. Very thankful for Pastor Jason Walker filling in. I heard that he did a great job last week preaching, and so I'm very thankful for him. He's a blessing. And uh, then also uh, a couple weeks ago, we introduced this series out of the book of Galatians entitled Living Life in the Liberty of Christ. And so um, as we get into the book today, we'll allude to some of the things that we learned uh, in that time as far as what they were going through. And I trust that the message will be a blessing. So Galatians chapter one. And once you found your place, if you'll stand in honor of God's word, then uh, we will read verses one through five as we get started in the book of Galatians. Bible says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me, unto the churches of Galatia. And again, the churches of Galatia would be referring to Acts chapter 13, when the apostle Paul went to Antioch of Pisidia, as well as Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, the southern region of Galatia, which is located there in central Turkey. And so that's what it talks about, the churches of Galatia. This is the only book that he writes that's addressed not just to one church, but multiple churches, which means this, the issues they were dealing with was permeating their region, not just one individual church. And so there's a big threat here that he's writing to them about. Verse three, grace be to you and peace from God the Father, and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So the title of our message here as we get into the exposition of Galatians is this, the reliable source of credible belief the reliable source of credible belief. So may God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> Whenever you're writing about an important or potentially a controversial topic, it's important to cite your sources. You know, we talk about citing your sources. You read it through a book. A book is often going to have endnotes footnotes, a bibliography that states where they got their information from, who the author was, of what work it was, and all that, and the page number and everything. And the reason why um, we do that is because they're citing their sources. See, it, it, citing your sources verifies the validity of your opinions as well as what you are writing about. You know, whenever I read a uh, report in the news or in the sports world, anytime I, I read this line, according to anonymous sources, it kind of makes me a little skeptical, a little suspect of the information. You know, who are the, these sources and where do they come from and are they even existing? Are they aliens? You know, I mean, where are these sources coming from? But you know what, whenever a, a beat writer or a journalist will, uh, will actually cite the name of the source, if it's a prominent name especially, then my ears perk up a little bit. I mean, there's a huge difference between a journalist writing 
according to sources close to the Broncos organization versus John Elway has confirmed there's a big difference there between sources close to the organization. That means they're not even within the organization. I mean, where is that coming from? Or there are times you'll say this, sources within the White House say, well, there's a big difference between that and saying the president says, the president confirms. There's a huge difference there. Of course, depending on who's in the office, there may not be a big difference between those two. But anyways, I digress. But the, the reality is, is that there is a big difference between citing anonymous sources and citing legitimate sources. I mean, if, you're, if they say, according to sources within the White House, who is that? Well, it could be the janitor who heard a third of a conversation. Or if it's sources close to the Broncos, it could be the wife of a doctor that's on the team who heard it actually from another doctor's wife. And so what, what are these sources? Well, when they actually attach a name to the source, it makes a difference. Citing a trustworthy source, here's what it does. It gives the report enough credibility to be believed by its readers. It stamps it with credibility. <clears throat> well, the Galatian believers here, and what prompts this writing is that they're torn between two belief systems is really what it is. That you've got the Apostle Paul who came and he preached the pure and true gospel to them. And you can find it in Acts chapter 3. How when he came, he preached to them that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. Apart from any works of the law that you have salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That was his message. So he's got this gospel that salvation is by grace through faith in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, then you've got these Galatian believers who come out of a very wicked, heathen, pagan culture. And now they're, they're hearing this gospel. They're rejoicing in their salvation that they've been forgiven. And now they're wondering, how do I live a godly life in such a pagan, wicked culture? He says that we don't have to do good things to earn acceptance and favor with God. And so how, how do we make sure that we don't slip back into our old sinful ways? Well, these false teachers came in that were Jews who still had to, held to the Old Testament law. They come in at just the right time to just the right people. And what do they tell them? Well, they say, I've got the solution for your problem. See, it's good that you have Christ. You absolutely need Christ to be forgiven. The salvation that you have through faith in Christ. Here's what faith in Christ does. It initiates your salvation and your acceptance with God. You might remember this from our introductory message. But becoming a Jew and keeping the works of the law finalizes your salvation and your acceptance with Jesus Christ. And so you need both. And so you might remember from the illustration, had Yvonne up here, and that, that uh, he had the, the pure gospel, just the Bible. And that was faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and they were, he was worried about putting that down and going and picking up the old works of the flesh. And they came and they said, I'm glad you have the gospel. And then piled some books on top of that and said, but you also need to keep the dietary laws. You need to keep the Sabbath. You need to travel to Jerusalem for these holy days. You need to wear this headband on your head that's got the little book of the law on it. You need to memorize the whole book of Deuteronomy. You need to wear a specific, a specific type of clothing. And so they were adding all these laws and all these rules and all these regulations. And what we found is as he had his hands so full, 
of the works of the law, he had no liberty to go out and do what, what the Holy Spirit wanted him to do. They were bound. And so Paul's writing this book to tell them, no, you have liberty in Jesus Christ. You've already been freed from your sin. You've already been uh, rescued from this evil world. And so you don't need all, all of the works of the law. All you need is Jesus Christ. And so that's what Paul's writing this book about. But if you consider these new believers, and I'm going to say new believers because of the fact that in verse 6, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you. And so that implies that it hasn't been very long. In fact, most people say that the Apostle Paul went there on his first missionary journey, returned to Antioch, had issues with Judaizers, and so they went to Jerusalem, had the Jerusalem council, and then while he's on his way back to Antioch, he catches wind of this doctrine coming around. So we're talking, this is not a very long time removed, and so these are new believers. So they've had this preacher come in, and this preacher tells them salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and in him you have all the acceptance that you need apart from the works of the law, and then you have these Judaizers that come in and say, no, you also need the works of the law. Now they are stuck in the middle saying, so which is true? What do we believe here? How do we determine whether Paul is right or if these Jewish teachers are right? How do we figure this out? And the reality is, is that many of them had begun to side with the Jewish religious teachers who were teaching them, you have to keep the works of the law. And so this is what's going on here. And they're trying to figure out how to determine which system to believe. Now, that's an important question for us to ask tonight. Because the truth is that there is a vast ocean of belief systems in our world, a vast ocean. We're constantly bombarded by misinformation, by slanted scientific reasoning, philosophy, and even doctrines within the realm of Christianity that hold to unbiblical positions. And then we have all the world religions that we'll talk about a little bit later. And so we live in a, a pluralistic world of all kinds of of religious belief systems. I mean, if you really think about it, it's kind of like a buffet of belief. I mean, you walk into a, a good buffet. I'm not talking about Golden Corral. I'm talking about a unique one where the food is more fresh, as fresh as a buffet can be. But you walk into that buffet, you've got your plate, and you're kind of like, where do I start here? Where do I begin? And so you come over here, and you might pick pick a little bit of potatoes and maybe some mac and cheese and maybe a slice of pizza and, and a, a chunk of steak there and maybe some green beans and some vegetables. And then you're going to get the bowl of, of ice cream and, and the cake and all that. And so by the time that you go and sit down, you've, you've picked and chosen what you wanted and you left out what you didn't want. That's really what we have today in a world of belief is that people go to different belief systems and they, okay, I like this about Christianity, but I really don't like that. I like this about Buddhism, but I don't like that. I like this about Hinduism, but I don't like that. I like this about Islam, but I don't like the radicals. And so you've got this picking and choosing of belief systems and it's led to all kinds of confusion when it comes to belief. But that's also true within the realm of Christianity, that there's so many different positions out there of what people believe and how people interpret the scripture, as well as their own thoughts that they read into the scripture. And so you can be a Christian who is even trying to come to a church and you're new in your faith and you're growing and you're like, okay, well, there's this and this and this and this. Which one is true? How do I know what to believe? 
and a secularist might be tuning in and they're on the outside and they're seeking truth and they're just wondering, well, which one of these religions do I believe? How do I know it's right? How do I determine which one is the correct system? That's where Paul starts his letter. He begins by citing the source of the true gospel. Paul's writing to the Galatian believers that came from his appointed position as an apostle of Jesus Christ. It says right there in verse 1, Paul, an apostle. Now, what was an apostle? Well, it was a privileged position or office in the church given directly by Jesus Christ to just a select few individuals. There are not true apostles today. That was a reserved office for a select few that eventually went off the scene as the apostles died. And so you have this office of the apostle. Now, in the first century world, the apostle was like an ambassador, talking about in the government, uh, in the government realm. That the, the apostle literally functioned just as an ambassador, that they were the agent who represented a higher authority, that they went on their behalf. And so they were given the same respect as the ultimate authority. I mean, you think of what an ambassador is and, and an embassy, how we have embassies over on the East Coast from foreign countries. And those embassies, while they are on American soil, are technically considered the territory of those countries. And the ambassador that resides in that sovereign territory functions on behalf of their ruler, their leader, their dictator, their president, whatever you want to call them. And so their responsibility is we are to give them the same respect as though we are speaking directly to their actual ruler of their country. That's the idea of what an apostle is. Now, where did the apostles come from? Who were the apostles? The apostles were appointed by Jesus Christ to have a privileged authority to propagate not only the gospel, but the doctrines of this new church, as well as writing scripture under the authority of the Holy Spirit. That was their place, their purpose as apostles. And so you have the original 12 apostles as appointed by Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 6. And I reference Luke chapter 6 because he specifically calls them apostles in Luke chapter 6. So he ordains them and commissions them. And there was a distinction between the apostles and the disciples that were there as well. And so you have that difference there. Well, then Judas Iscariot betrays Jesus and goes out and subsequently hangs himself. And so then you come to Acts chapter 1, and the remaining 11 apostles, they come together and they base some criteria on which somebody would be appointed in Judas's stead. And so they, as a group of apostles, appointed Matthias to be the apostle in the place of Judas. Well, then you have other men like Barnabas who are given the designation of an apostle, but his designation as an apostle was not the same as the twelve. It was really using that same term as an ambassador. He was really an apostle of the church at Antioch, commissioned to take the gospel into the uttermost part of the earth. And so what we would call him today is an ordained missionary who goes to foreign lands to preach the gospel. So here's the question. Where is the apostle Paul in all this? How did he get his apostleship? Well, if you remember, Paul was a zealous Pharisee, the most strict sect of Judaism, and he was vehemently opposed to the New Testament church and toward these Christian believers. And so he was the one who really oversaw and led 
the persecution of the first century church, including the martyrdom of Stephen, which took place at his feet. But on his way up to Damascus to arrest Christians and bring them back to charge them, the Lord Jesus Christ met him along the way. And, and this light shone from heaven, and he speaks out to him and says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And Saul of Tarsus responded, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That means he acknowledged Jesus for who he is as Lord and as Savior. And then he goes up to Ananias and he ends up being baptized there. And Paul acknowledges many times throughout his letters that he was called by Jesus Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That was his position. He was not the same as the other apostles because he had not seen the resurrected Lord uh, or had not walked with Jesus while he was on this earth and the different criteria that they had. And so he wasn't in the same. And so Paul talks about how he was the least of all the apostles and he was an apostle born out of due time. That means that he had a separate mission. Nonetheless, he also had the same mission that while their mission was to go to the Jews and go to different places, his mission was specifically to go to the Gentiles. And so that was his mission that came from where? Jesus Christ. And so what Paul says here is, if you look at verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man. Notice the difference there. One is plural, one is singular. You know what he's saying here? I was made an apostle, not by a group of men, not like Matthias was. I was not appointed by men, nor was I appointed by one man. And no one man on this earth appointed me. But he says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so Paul is, uh, what's happening here is Paul is addressing them as a man who was specifically appointed by Jesus Christ to be an apostle. He was an agent who operates on the behalf of Jesus Christ. Well, what we're going to find here in the book of Galatians is something that we don't see in the book of Acts. And that is what happened between Saul's conversion and when he actually went out as a missionary. What happened in that time? What he's going to tell us is that he spent three years in the Arabian desert. What was he doing in the Arabian desert? Receiving the doctrines of the gospel and the doctrines of the church from who? Well, he says, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ. And that's what he's going to tell us is my gospel, the gospel that I preached unto you when I first came into Galatia, was a gospel that came not from the mind of men, but from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so what Paul's doing is he's establishing his credibility as a reliable source for the gospel. And so that's what he's doing here. But he also wants them to know this. I'm not a lone wolf. I'm not on my own in what I'm about to tell you. I'm not on my own in what I preach to you. Because if you look at verse 2, what does it say? And all the brethren which are with me. He's saying there's some brothers and sisters in Christ here who also 
stand behind me in this truth of the gospel. And he's also alluding to the apostles there that there are other apostles that stand behind him in the truth of the gospel that he has preached. And so he's not a lone wolf. Well, the fact that Paul is drawing their attention to his credentials implies that these false teachers were leading the Galatians to question his credentials and thus the reliability of his gospel. They were saying, where did he get his gospel from anyways? And so they were leading him to question. And so Paul, from the very get-go in this letter, is clearing off a spot to tell them that his authority and his position as an apostle did not come from man, but came directly from the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. And here's how I'm going to put this in this message. The author and the agent of the true gospel, Jesus Christ and God the Father. And so then Paul is going to remind them of what the true gospel has accomplished in their lives. It says in verse number three, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a common introductory statement. You'll see this in many letters in the day, but it's actually a combination of both Jewish and Gentile that you had the uh, Gentiles who would say grace and you had the Jews who would say peace. And he's putting them together because a lot of times he's dealing with disunity. And that's even what's going to happen here, that there's a schism between Jew and between Gentile. And so he brings this together and he says, grace and peace be to you. But I want to show you also that this is more than just a common introduction. There's something that is being communicated here. And the reason why is because the grace and because they had experienced the full measure of grace and of peace. How did they experience the full measure of grace? They were the enemies of God. They were alienated from him. In a pagan, godless, wicked culture, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. There was no hope of eternal life in and of themselves, no works of the law that they could do to find salvation. And yet God sent a man by the name of the apostle Paul to their cities who came bearing the message that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And when they believed the gospel, they got saved and their entire lives were changed. That was the grace of God. It was not something they deserved. It was not something they could earn, not something they could merit of their own flesh. No, it was all of the grace of God. They had been the recipients of grace. And in turn, because they were the recipients of grace, they were also made the recipients of peace. How is that? Because of the fact that they were at enmity with God because of their sin. But when Jesus Christ came, he took their sin out of the way and he reconciled them back to a peaceful relationship with God. Hey, listen, through Christ, you can have grace and through Christ, you can have peace with God. Well, where did this grace and where did this peace come from? He says, from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, well, how did God the Father and, from, and the Lord Jesus Christ, how did, how did they bring about this grace? How did they bring about this peace in their life? Verse 4 says, who gave himself for our sins. That word gave is a word that means to offer as a gift, of course. But it also has this connotation to donate something of the free will. I mean, you know, we might have some kind of 
uh, disaster, earthquake, or tsunami, something like that that takes place that is very physically harming and damaging to people. And so you'll have uh, places that set up stations like the Red Cross or something like that where you can, uh, they have a blood drive and you can go and you can donate your blood. And so you go to that station and they, they stick that massive tube in your, in your arm there. And they didn't force you to do that, did they? Now, there are times they do force you. Uh, you know, I learned this when we had our, our daughter that they, they force uh, to draw the blood of a woman with this big, massive RV when, uh, IV when they're in the hospital there. And so uh, they, there are times when they've got to force you. But when you go to a donation center, that's not being forced. That's of the free will. That's saying, I'm going to donate my blood so that those who are threatened with the face of death can have life through the transfusion of my blood. That's the word gave himself, that Jesus went to the cross and his body was broken and his blood was spilled out and poured out for our sins. And what this is saying is that he donated his blood so that we might have life through his blood. And so he gave himself for our sins. And in giving himself, look what else it says happens, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Remember, that's one of the things that they are struggling with here. How do we find deliverance from this present evil world? Paul said it was by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The Judaizers are saying it's by the works of the law. You need Christ to have that forgiveness. Yeah, you needed him to give himself for your sins. But now you keep the works of the law to find deliverance from this present evil world. Well, the Apostle Paul starts off attacking that right away. And he says, no, the deliverance from this present evil world comes only through Christ. You already have that, is what he was telling them. This present evil world, the age in which we live that's characterized by evil, wickedness, lewdness, and sin. And so it says that he might deliver us. That word deliver, it's a word that means to rescue, to set free or to extract. You know, we might have a, a, a military covert operation where they go overseas. They got to use great stealth and to break into this place so that they can extract a prisoner, a, a captive. They, they extract them. They remove them from where they were and take them to where they need to be. It's an extraction mission, a rescue mission. You know what the technical term is when a dentist pulls one of your teeth out? An extraction. And so what that means is it plucks out and removes you. Well, here's what he's saying. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins so that he might extract us out of this present evil world. But it's also a word that means to rescue, to rescue somebody that's in danger, to bring somebody to safety that's in harm's way. Now, what Paul says that Jesus did on their behalf, it really reveals their condition before Christ. And that is this, that they were sinful people living in a sinful world in need of a sinless Savior. That's who they were. That's what they needed. And what Paul is telling them and what he told them when he first went was that Savior is Jesus Christ and that he can forgive you from your sins and he can deliver you from this evil licentious culture in which you live. Because that's what they were being taught was that if you want to be rescued from this evil, sinful world, then you need to keep the works of the law. And that appealed to them. What do you mean that appealed to them? Why? 
Why would it be appealing that I can do something to earn salvation or to earn deliverance? Why is that appealing? I love how Timothy Keller put this. He said this, we love to be our own saviors. He says, our hearts love to manufacture glory for themselves. And so we find messages of self-salvation extremely attractive, whether they are religious in the standpoint of do these works and earn eternal salvation, or if they are secular, grasp hold on these things and you'll have the blessing now. He said, we love those and they are attractive. But he says this, the gospel comes and turns them all upside down. It says you are in such a hopeless position that you need a rescue that has nothing to do with you at all. And then it says this, God in Jesus provides a rescue which gives you far more than any false salvation your heart may love to chase. And then he goes on to say this, we did not ask for rescue, but God in his grace planned what we didn't realize we needed. And Christ, by his grace, came to achieve the rescue we never could have achieved on our own. That's what Paul is teaching them. The kind of rescue that they are telling you about is one that you can't possibly achieve on your own. It's one that has to be given to you by somebody else. And so what he's really telling them is this, that they didn't need more teaching they didn't need more instruction. They didn't need more rules to follow and laws to keep. I mean, let's think about it this way. If somebody is drowning in the ocean and your boat's coming by, what do they need the most? Well, you're going to go to the office and you're going to go and pull out a, a big old thick book on swimming. And you're going to say, here you go, buddy. And chuck over the book on swimming, right? The manual on how to swim. Is that what they need? No, they need us to throw them a rope. They need us to throw them a lifesaver, something that's gonna, that they're going to be able to cling on to, something that's going to rescue them out of the situation that they're in. And so uh, the reality is that the Galatians didn't need a manual on how to be delivered from this evil world. They needed a Savior who could rescue them from it. And that's what every single one of us needs. We don't need more religion. We don't need more belief systems. We don't need to go and pick and choose every belief system that's out there. No, we can't rescue ourselves. And none of those false religions can rescue us either. We need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. And so what Paul's teaching them from the very beginning is that Christ is sufficient both for forgiveness and for deliverance from the present evil world. And he wants them to understand this. You can believe it and take it to the bank. Well, how do they know they could believe it? I mean, as they're looking at this situation, they've got Paul's gospel and they've got the false teacher's gospel, but they don't necessarily see them as false teachers as of yet. And so they're saying, OK, well, Paul's preaching this. They're preaching this. Which one do we believe? How do we determine which one is true? Well, where does Paul say his gospel came from? It says in verse four, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of of God and our Father. That phrase, according to, it means to come down from a specific location. What's the specific location? The will of God. What does will mean? It means to wish. It means to desire. It means to determine. To predetermine, even. To be determined to do something. 
And so what this is telling us is, is that Paul is showing them that the only source and the only true and reliable source of the gospel is God himself. That he is the one who willed it. And so this gospel I'm preaching to you, that Christ gave himself for the forgiveness of your sins and for the deliverance from this present evil world, that was God's will for your life. It sources him. Well, why did God will it that way? Why did he plan that our salvation would be only through faith in Jesus Christ? Why did he plan it that our forgiveness would be only through Jesus Christ? Why did he plan it that only he could deliver us from this present evil world? Verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. (laughs) You know what he's saying here? See, when you look at this gospel and you say, yeah, I can find acceptance of God through my keeping of the law. Or if you're even talking about salvation and you say, yeah, I can be saved through my own good merit. Hey, that leaves some of the credit to you. But God does not share his glory with man. His plan was that our salvation would be of him and of him alone. And so what that means is that the only gospel that could that could save and rescue the sinner, rescue them from this present evil world and fully bring glory to God was the gospel that was authored and carried out by God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only one. And that is the gospel that Paul preached to them. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And so Paul is really starting off here, teaching the Galatians that the credibility of the system of their belief is determined by the reliability of the source of their belief. And he's getting to this. Therefore, you should trust in my gospel because my gospel came directly from the author and the agent of all truth. That's where it came from. And so what this means for us today is the very same. That the credibility of the system is determined by the reliability of the source. So let me ask you this. What's the source of your belief? Who do you turn to when you're trying to figure out what do I believe in this whole mess of religion? What do I believe in all these different interpretation and all these different doctrines of the Bible? What's the source that you turn to by which you base your belief system? Because the reality is, is that there is a plethora of belief systems that come from a plethora of sources. And just like the Galatians were dealing with, the reality is, is that there are perverted gospels that come from perverted sources. There are still gospels out there today that say that salvation comes through your own good works, through your own merit, that it's keeping the rituals and the traditions of men, that it's keeping the sacraments, that it's paying your penance, that it's uh, that, that it's praying over the dead and that your baptism saves you and washes away your sin and has that part or that it's as you take the Lord's Supper that that's how you can stay saved. You know what that's doing? That is a gospel that says your acceptance with God and your salvation is based on something other than Jesus Christ, which is not found in the scriptures. It's not. Then there's a gospel that teaches you that you have no choice in whether or not you're saved. And therefore, God either elects you to salvation or to condemnation based solely upon his own desire and his own will. 
Now, there are some issues with that. The first one that I'm going to say is just simply logical, and that is this, that to say that God wills and determines some who will be saved and some who will not be saved, it's illogical. And the reason why it's illogical is because God is, and again, this is just even human thinking here, (laughs) but what that implies is that a person can come and beg and plead with God, I want to be saved, I want to believe, I want to have forgiveness, and I want to have eternal life, and God's saying, no, you're not one of them. That's illogical. But then you have the problem of Scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 9, it says that the Lord is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Did you catch what it said there? That he's not willing. Same word. But there are people out there who preach a gospel that says that God wills, that it's his desire, it's his willingness, it's his determination that this person will be saved, and it's his will and his determination that this person will not be saved. Well, that's a contradiction to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, because it says that is nowhere in his will. His will is not that anyone should perish. His will is that all should come to repentance. It's a false gospel. There's a gospel that teaches that in the end, God's love is going to win everybody over and everybody's going to be saved and nobody's going to go to hell. There's a gospel out there, but what I'm going to tell you this is that's found nowhere in the scriptures. There is a hell. There is a great white throne judgment. And the book of Revelation says there will be some who are cast into the lake of fire. It doesn't come from the scripture. And then there's this gospel that Jesus died for all the sins of all the world and that he's going to save you and his blood covers you whether or not you believe in him. That is not found in the scripture. You have to believe. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And so to believe that his blood just uh, covers me whether or not I really believe in him, that's a false gospel. It's a false gospel. And then there's a pluralistic gospel that says, no matter what you believe, all paths lead to God. Whether it is Islam, whether it is Hinduism, whether it is Buddhism, whether it is atheism, that that it's all about how you find God within. That's not found in Scripture. You cannot find any of these false gospels in the Word of God, which only leads one more place from which they descended, and that is this, the minds of man. It's what man has come up with in order to cope with the fact he refuses to believe God. It's what they've come up with. But beyond the gospel, we live in a pluralistic society with a wide variety of belief systems. You do have all those world religions like Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism. You also have ancestral worship and you have animistic religions and pantheism and the belief that you find the divine in in the creation and in the trees and in the animals and you can have your dog and your dog is God. We live in that kind of society. But then on top of that, you have psychology and you have philosophy and you have new age mysticism that produce their own worldviews and their own systems of belief. But listen, all of these belief systems descend down, not from God above, but from the thoughts and the meditations of man. While they're on a mountainside in Tibet, meditating, thinking things out, 
connecting with the divine, finding within their own conscience and their own mind what they believe. Well, why is it important to know what I believe? And why is it important that my belief system comes from a reliable source? Why is it so important that we don't just pick and choose from everything, but that we really do have a true belief system? Here's the reason why. Your belief system, first of all, affects your eternity. See, uh, if you believe in a perverted gospel that believes that salvation is by anything other than faith alone, through uh, grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus alone, if you believe in any other gospel, you're not saved. And without being saved, without having the blood of Christ covering your sin, there's no hope of salvation. There's no hope of eternal life and forgiveness and reconciliation to God. And so that affects your eternal destiny. There is no heaven without Christ. All there is is hell if you don't believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. And so your belief system affects your eternity, but it also affects your everyday life. Because if the source of your belief doesn't come from God, that's going to have a dramatic impact on how you view life. It's going to have a, an effect on your worldview. It affects your view of eternity, your, your view of the meaning and purpose of life. It affects your view of how the world came into being, your view on marriage, your view on parenting, uh, your view on the church. I mean, we're talking about every single thing in your life will be affected by what you believe by the system of your belief. So how do you make sure your belief system is right? Well, again, I'll say that the credibility of the system is determined by the reliability of the source. And since God is the author and creator of all things, only he can be the true source of true belief because he made everything and he knows how it operates and he determined how it would operate. It happens according to the will of God, the father. And so that means that the source of your belief can't be society. You can't base it on what, what the culture says you ought to believe. It means that you can't base your belief system on even your upbringing or the religious system that you were brought up in, or the culture or ethnic history that you were brought up in. It, it can't be dependent on your education and your professors. It, it can't, certainly can't be uh, determined by what's going on in Washington or by what's going on in California. It can't be determined by what government and what officials think. You can't base your source of belief on them, even if they are godly people, even if they are godly presidents, even if they are conservative presidents who are Christians, we can't base our belief system on man. Nor can it be based on your friends and what they think and what they believe or what your family thinks and what your family believes. It can't be based on philosophy and it can't be based on psychology. It can't be based on books written by man. Anytime somebody comes to me and they, and they say, oh, well, I believe this about the Bible. And I say, okay, how did you come to that conclusion? Well, I read this book by this guy. And they'll give me a name. Or they'll show me a book and say, but this book says here. And I'm going to say, what that book says doesn't line up with what this book says. So I'm going to throw this book in the trash and I'm going to cling to this book with all my heart. 
See, that's what it means for us, is that anything that is contrary to the holy inspired, God-breathed scriptures is a faulty source, which will lead to a faulty belief, which will lead to a faulty life. And so what this means is if what society believes contradicts what God says, society's wrong. And it means that if what philosophy says contradicts what God says, the philosophy is wrong. If the psychology uh, disagrees with what God says, the psychology is wrong. And even if science contradicts what God says, the science too is wrong. How can you say that? Science is science. Well, here's the reality. Every single man, regardless of whether they're a believer or if they're an unbeliever, brings into their scientific method their own personal bias and belief system. And it's true on both sides. And those who don't bring their personal bias with them, more often than not, end up believers. (laughs) And so if what men teach and say contradicts what God says, those men and their teaching are wrong, no matter how long you've believed them, no matter how long they've taught that, No matter how long your family has been in that belief system, what Paul wants them to understand and what God wants us to understand is that the only reliable source of a credible belief system is God. And here's the reason why. Because he is the author and the agent, not only of the gospel, but of all truth. And so that means that rather than looking to men to find the answers to our questions, And rather than looking to man to find the solutions to our problems, and rather than looking to man to figure out what we ought to believe, we need look no further than God and his word, because it is the truth. God is the one who determined that salvation would be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. He willed and determined it that way. And so trusting in any other means of salvation outside of the freely donated blood of Jesus Christ is a faulty belief that comes from a faulty source. The only way to be saved, the only way to have redemption, forgiveness, and eternal life is to trust in Christ and Him alone. And so if your belief system doesn't line up with what God says, then here's what you need to do. Check your sources. Get your facts straight. Because if the facts that you have contradict the facts that God gives, your source is unreliable. And so if the source of your belief is anything other than God, it will lead you to a faulty belief system which will lead you to a faulty life, which dramatically affects your eternal destiny. Only trust in the God who is the author of all truth. He is the reliable source for a credible belief. Our Father.